1: Good afternoon, and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of fight back from the week that was. She was a true Zoomer in that she kept going right up until the end of her life. U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died at the beginning of last weekend. She was 87 and ultimately passed due to complications of metastatic pancreatic cancer. But she refused to slow down, even as her doctors told her to consider retirement. At this point, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's legacy is unmeasurable. But her life's work was the focus of many conversations this past week, including on Fight Back when I was joined by our Zoomer squad, David Kravitz, VP at Zoomer Media, Bill Van Gorder, Acting Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and Peter Muggridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine.
2: Her longevity has created quite a... Uh... Quite a, a lot of political turmoil in the, in the U.S., uh, especially with her her uh, deathbed wishes that she didn't want a new judge appointed in her place until um, the new uh, a new president was elected. And um, you know, regardless of whether that's constitutionally pos- possible or not, is uh, it's just created so much squabble in the U.S. and the. Uh, you know the supreme court is supposed to be in a non-political body but it it just shows that it it's absolutely political and the appointment or or no appointment it will, will be a huge uh, huge, um, uh, you know, uh, turmoil going forward. It's just causing so much chaos right now.
1: I know this was written about on everything dot uh, in terms of her legacy and what she's left us having been just the second woman to serve on the U S Supreme court and fighting for women's rights, uh, since she was a young lawyer, certainly uh, her legacy is epic.
2: No doubt. And, and, uh, you know, it, it, just proven by the outpouring of uh, 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 of support and, and tribute she's she's been getting since she's become sort of a a pop culture uh, figure. For, you know, the the first Supreme Court judge to be to, you know transform into a pop culture figure.
3: Bill, what would you like to add? Well, I'm. You know, there are two things that strike me. One is what a wonderful indication she is on how older adults can continue to contribute uh even in their in their later life as as she did in spite of her health issues and uh i think the sad thing uh, in many ways is that we're now seeming to focus on uh, what's going to happen after in terms of her replacement and not focusing as much as we should on what she accomplished her uh, uh her whole involvement in roe versus wade and Women's right to choose uh, for them for themselves. Uh, it would have been it would have been nice if we could remember her positively more than spending all this time worrying about what's going to happen now.
1: Uh, David, what do you, what do you think about the fact that she worked right until the end, but yet was advised uh, on many occasions to slow down and retire?
4: Well, that is very that is very uh, zoomer like, you know, that you because there was no a diminution of her mental faculties. She had uh, the ability to discharge uh, her function, her job, and she did so. But I also think there's another angle on this that, that should be said that is maybe a bit of a culture change, that she was very dear friends with uh, Antonin Scalia, a justice on the Supreme Court, who was di- uh, diametrically opposed to her legal position. Uh, so it, she, I think, maybe the last of that era where maybe you can be collegial, you can be respectful, you can actually have a, a personal friendship. It wasn't just tolerance of to each other; they were actually friends. They went out for dinner together, there, and they couldn't have been more opposite. So that the kind of venom and acrimony we're seeing today doesn't. Uh, she was she was of that old schooling. She actually said very positive things, for example, about Brett Kavanaugh, whose appointment to the court was very acrimonious, and she likes him. So she's an example of being able to hold to a position and be strong in a position and yet be uh, respectful and courteous of people with the opposite position. And I think that's going to be missed as well.
1: Well, isn't that something you would want? Wouldn't that be the best quality of a true judge or justice? For sure. For sure. Yeah.
4: Uh, Which suggests, by the way, that the court itself may be less political than uh, what it's. Being made into by the politicians Just, uh, the justices themselves may be uh, less acrimonious and less uh, you know sniping at each other and there have been examples where the the people that were supposed to be conservative didn't necessarily vote that way on an issue uh, so the court may be more collegial than the than the politicians give it credit for.
1: Fight Back's Monday Zoomer Squad: David Kravitz, VP at Zoomer Media; Bill Van Gorder, Acting Chief Policy Officer at CARP; and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. As we approach Thanksgiving, it is traditionally the time to think about those less fortunate than ourselves. This year, the message is more important than ever, with a 200% increase in new clients at Toronto's Daily Bread Food Bank. Neil Hetherington is the CEO of the Daily Bread Food Bank. He's joined us at various points throughout the pandemic, and he was back with me as I filled in for Libby Snymer on Monday.
5: You know, as we approach Thanksgiving, which is historically the time where individuals contribute the most food to the daily bread, our shelves are at its lowest point coming out of the, the summer. And, um, and so we, we looked at the problem ahead, which was how are we going to do a mass uh, Thanksgiving food sort? You know, typically, Jane, we'll have 500 people come in for the weekend and do a, a, a wonderful event. Of uh, giving back to the community. Well, obviously we can't do that with the restrictions that uh, that we have and with safety concerns. So, uh, so this year um, we have announced uh, two initiatives. The first is in partnership with Purulater, where twelve thousand Torontonians received over this past weekend uh, a red bag on uh, on their doorstep. And uh, volunteers distributed those bags throughout the city and, and in six uh, areas, and, uh, and we're asking people to put food in there that they would like to serve to their families, and next week we, the Purulator, uh team will go out and, uh, and pick up that food. Oh, that so is that's such it. a great idea you know, it, it makes it makes great sense to to capture their logistic uh logistics uh and handling um capacity and and it allows individuals to be at home to be safe of course if you didn't get a red bag you can always drop off food at any fire hall or grocery store And then we came to the problem of, well, this Thanksgiving, what are we going to do? There's, there's always families that want to come out and support the daily bread at that time. So what we're, we're going to do instead on October the 10th is have a drive through. Food donation opportunity. So we're going to ask for, for, you know, well-known Torontonians, uh, to, uh, to come and to, to volunteer their time and for everyone in the city to, uh, to drive through the parking lot here at 191 New Toronto Street. And, uh, and in a contactless way, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll remove the donated food and, uh, and then we'll sort that in the, the warehouse, um, over the coming weeks. So it's just a way for people to, to, you know, take their kids out um, to uh, to have a drive together and to be able to uh, to know that they're doing good this Thanksgiving. Neil,
1: what is the most effective way we can help? And we know that Zoomer radio listeners have
5: really come through in the past. They have. Um, So I I would say three things. Um, So first is um, the advocacy side of things. Uh, on our website, we lay out clear positions for different levels of government. And I'm hopeful that um, when you make decisions at the ballot box, when you make decisions to write a councillor or a member of provincial or federal parliament, that you'll consider uh, writing uh, and supporting recommendations that we've laid out. The second thing would be donations of, uh, of funds. If you choose to and have the capacity to make a donation, we will make sure that it is used um, in in the acquisition and transportation of food and uh, and we will get it out uh, quickly. The third would be a donation of food um, and so when you donate food to us um, it 's it's sorted and, and moved out quickly Now, if you don 't make a monetary donation, we can purchase more food than, than you 're able to purchase um, you know at the grocery store. But I think there's a life lesson when individuals Choose to donate food you know if you've if you got some, some grandchildren or children and go into the grocery store and saying, hey why don't you choose the food that you would like tonight uh, for, for dinner what, what, what would you like to eat and we're going to put that all together and, and put, place it into the bin at the fire hall or at the grocery store. You know, I think there's an incredible life lesson that can be uh, shared about social justice and what it means to, to make sure that everybody is uh, 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 able to live with dignity in the, in the city. So those three things, donating food, donating funds, and advocating for systemic change.
1: Neil Hetherington, CEO of the Daily Bread Food Bank. For more information, go to dailybread.ca. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Well, not only are COVID-19 cases on the increase, the long lineups for COVID-19 testing have become a concern. On Tuesday, Fight Back Strategy panel joined Libby Snymer on a day when there were 478 new cases of the virus in Ontario, the biggest one-day tally since the beginning of May. What's to be done to confront the challenges around testing for COVID-19? Weighing in, Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Ernst Cliff Strategy Group in Toronto, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village. We need
6: two kinds of testing. We need a screening test, and then we need a diagnostic test. And, you know, right now people are lining up for a diagnostic test, and it's creating huge backlogs in our testing, making it very difficult to actually identify who has tested positive for COVID, because we're processing so many tests that people are actually using for screening purposes. The waiting takes a long time, it takes a long time to process the test, and although it was necessary for the schools to be comfortable to have the children come back, really, a screening test and we need something that is easier and more uh, convenient to do uh, either at home or at different locations to help people get on with their lives because um, now that things are opening up and businesses are being confronted with people who test positive with COVID and then what does that mean for their business? And then schools are worried about uh, cases spreading through and then they're being extra cautious around what kids can come back to class for those who've opted for uh, in-person learning. It's just, it's crushing the system and at the same time, our cases are going up. So there's things that people are doing, like we all, you know, as well that there are certain activities that are more prone to create the spread of COVID than others. And yet, we don't, we don't, we don't really have a good way of 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 helping people manage through all kinds of cases. So we don't have a good way of helping the schools manage a screening process. We don't have a good way of communicating to kids like you can't just go party. And then the kids are lining up to get COVID tests so that they can show that they're negative, so they can go party. <laughs> Which, <laughs> it's it's a, actually rational,
7: right? Well, it's it's like the the yeah, I was musing, John Cavobianco, that, that you know what constitutes a wild party has certainly changed in the last few weeks. Absolutely,
4: <laughs> but, <laughs> it certainly it certainly has, Libby, and I I think that um, we need to uh, we need to sort of you know ensure that. that that safety measures are put in place and obviously we're going to be hearing from the Premier uh, shortly with respect to what his thoughts are on, on ensuring that we're clamping down on this. I think the move that he made last week, which was to shorten and reduce the numbers of people that are outdoors and indoors for smart, I thought that was really good. I thought he's always been very keen on ensuring that anything that happens by way of spikes You'll be listening to health officials, and, and, and he's doing that. I'm glad to see that more and more people are are, are taking the tests, hence the lineups. I think that's always a positive thing. Uh, but I do think that there's an infrastructure issue where, you know, not only the, the labs that are producing the results from the tests, but the mechanisms of tests have to continually be uh, be evolving.
7: Charles, I mean, there are all kinds of people touting new tests, antibody tests, other kinds of tests, but, you know, there, there isn't one that I think passes, really passes the threshold of, of enough
8: accuracy. No, you put your finger right on it, Libby. Um, I mean, when you're tested matters, how early on in after contracting COVID that, you, that you're tested matters a lot. There are false negatives. Um, there were false. There were false positives. And not very it, it, many
7: false positives, but a lot many of false, false negatives. But a lot
8: of false negatives, and that's and that's the bigger problem because people are given the you know the sense that they're fine and that they can go on with business as usual. Testing remains a huge problem and one that I know the government is desperate to solve. Uh, it's going to be very interesting to hear what the premier has to say because my own sense of it is that he really needs to use the bully pulpit of the premier to emphasize with people that they have got to smarten up in terms of their personal conduct. And that has been, you know, not to single out young people, but it's especially true of young people, because the majority of cases that are coming forward now are folks under the age of 40. And, you know, they're putting their parents at risk. They're putting their grandparents at risk. My wife was at Costco this morning, and she reports that there were lineups for toilet paper and for paper towels oh, no. and for disinfectant. Oh, and so it's, it's beginning to feel a little bit like March again, where it, it really feels like people are on edge.
1: Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto. John Capobianco, Senior Vice President, Senior Partner at Fleshman Hillard High Road. And Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, Fight Back's Tuesday Strategy Panel. I'm Jane Brown, and this is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. So what should you do if someone you've spent time with in person, even distanced and with a mask, comes down with COVID-19? It's a growing issue in schools as well as workplaces and in social gatherings. On Tuesday, Libby asked this question of Dr. Gerald Evans, Chair of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Kingston General Hospital, and Dr. Andrew Morris, Infectious Disease Specialist at Sinai Health System and University Health Network in Toronto.
5: Each
9: public health unit is providing specific guidance, but if someone tests positive, then the first thing that should happen is people who are uh, have been in contact with that person should um, immediately go into isolation and get testing. So because if they're in contact of a known case, then we still don't know that person's status.
7: Okay, so then the question is, what is contact? If they were spaced at least six feet apart and wearing masks, is that contact?
9: Again, public health uh, has different guidance uh, regionally. But in general, if you have any kind of prolonged certainly more than about 15 minutes um, exposure to someone, masked or unmasked, to be honest with you, in close proximity, then that would be a contact. But on top of that, because we know that exposures can occur, you know, over a prolonged period of time, regardless of the distance, if you're in, for example, a poorly ventilated workplace or classroom, then again, those would be reasons. So for example, uh, current guidance is that if uh, a child or a teacher tests positive, then that class also needs to get tested and be considered
10: as being contacts.
7: Uh, we'll move to Dr. Evans. Then do all their parents have to be tested as well?
10: Uh, yeah, it's a great question. And the answer is no, actually. Uh, I, I would point out Dr. Morris is saying some very important points here, which I think are needed to be emphasized, which is that. Uh, we are really looking at a somewhat decentralized response here in Ontario. Public health units, as he said, are oftentimes setting out their own procedures and policies, um, and it's not, uh, how shall I say, consistent necessarily across the entire province. But around the issue of business exposures and things, it really depends on where you are. And the example I would use is uh, I run medic, uh, infection prevention control at a hospital, um, you know, we have patients that would have COVID-19 and we're going to have people who are in contact, but with the measures we've put in place in a hospital environment with masking universally um, and all the other appropriate measures, in fact, even coming in contact with someone who's COVID-19, although I agree that you need to be tested, the likelihood that you actually are going to get transmission is low. And that depends then on a business where... Maybe universal masking isn't the rule or something, in which case, it actually, he got it right on. It's 15 minutes of exposure. But if you have a mask on, uh, uh, otherwise, and you have a uh, fair consistency of physical distancing, then, in fact... We would consider that a low risk contact versus a high risk contact, which would be without mass or physical distancing over that time exposure. So it is a little bit there is a little bit of the devil in the details in understanding when you talk about a business, what that business is actually doing. And obviously healthcare, uh, physician offices are going to be perhaps very much different from running a small business uh, and or even a larger business where you know you have a large number of employees in a in a fixed area. So the one thing I I would like to emphasize is that if you are someone who is a contact with someone who's undergoing testing, you are not at that moment needing to be isolated. And that's been that's been one of the few consistent things across the issue. However, if that person now does test positive and you were a parent, they have a child, then you require testing. Much way, Dr. Morris just mentioned that a contact of someone with COVID nineteen needs to be tested.
7: Uh, Dr. Morris, you get the last twenty seconds. <laughs>
10: almost all really non-essential
9: congregate uh, settings should be uh, reduced as much as possible. So I'd be uh, getting rid of the uh, the religious gatherings, the indoor dining, et cetera, and really bring it back to the bare bones because uh, I-, I think what we're seeing is our testing system can't handle this and our public health contact tracing is increasingly challenged. And if we can't um, identify accurately contacts of new cases, uh, this will continue to grow endlessly.
1: Dr. Andrew Morris, infectious disease specialist at Sinai Health System and University Health Network in Toronto, and Dr. Gerald Evans, chair of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Kingston General Hospital. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. Jerry in Toronto called about the federal old age
6: pension. I'm hoping that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau keeps his election promise of increasing the old age pension by 10% for seniors over 75. Uh, for couples, it's okay, but for single seniors over 75, uh, we have a really hard time, you know, like over 100% of the uh, pension pays just the uh, maintenance fee and then the property tax has to come out of our savings. It's, it's really hard to get by.
1: Ron in Toronto phoned with a question about reducing gatherings right across the province.
10: Why are they making these changes in terms of number of people that can att- attend in social gatherings? Why are they making them province-wide when I mean, you go to Cochrane, Ontario or Hurston, you're lucky if you have five case- COVID cases for the whole
0: year. And now... Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of
1: great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Dennis in Brampton, who phoned to remind us of the devastating long-term effects of COVID-19.
2: One of the um, things that being overlooked when we discuss number of cases. People talk about deaths in relation to cases, but there is a lot of uh, evidence and instances out there now where the effects of the COVID disease are lasting much longer than uh, anyone had thought. And they're actually being referred to as long haulers who are having negative impact of COVID six months to a year after they've had the disease. So um, people treat are continuing to treat this as just a, uh, or some are continuing to look at it as normal flu. It is not.
1: That does it for today's best to fight back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the fight back knockout call of the week, phone us from noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer dot ca. Follow us on Twitter at FightbackLibby and have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416-367-9636. 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight
0: Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Paddy, with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer, Moses Nimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio.